If you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to turn to the passage uh, in the book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. So if you go all the way to the right to the book of Revelation and then hang a left, you will get back to the book, the little book of 1 Peter. We've been walking through the book of 1 Peter over the last few months and will continue uh, up until the time of Easter. And uh, we're looking at what does it mean for believers to suffer? And what does Peter help? How does he encourage them? How does he uh, help them to know what to do during times of suffering? And so we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to read along with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Well, let's pray, and then we'll break this passage apart, put it back together, and uh, have a better understanding of what Peter is trying to tell them in the context of suffering. So, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that every word is trustworthy and true, that it is a reliable guide for faith and for practice, And that as we come to your word, we understand that you can apply it to our lives in a number of different ways for a number of different uh, experiences that people are having and going through right now. And so we thank you that that with just a few words, you created everything that we see from nothing. And so understanding that, we know that a word from you today could change everything in our life. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us discerning minds, that like the Bereans, we would check your word Uh, to verify that everything that we hear today is true and biblical and trustworthy. Would you speak to us today and give us wisdom and discernment that we may apply your word to our life and to our situation. We pray that you would use your word like sandpaper to fashion us into the image of Jesus Christ, that we may be image bearers, that when people see us, they would see a reflection of your glory in our life, as it matches up to your word. Would you give us great joy and peace and that our light would shine brightly in a dark place, that people would see your deep love and your unimaginable sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. We love you so much and thank you for your word and pray that you would use it today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of things just to start out uh, on the front end as we begin this passage. It's a tough passage, uh, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Um, And just so you know right up front, uh, I write all my own sermons. And some of you, that may be a good thing. Some of you may say, hey, you may uh, consider plagiarizing every once in a while. Uh, But in this day and age, I know of a lot of pastors. I know a lot of people who get in a lot of trouble for just kind of downloading a sermon and and just preaching it. And I don't know what your experience is, but but I've... I've never preached someone else's sermon without 
letting you know up front that I've, I've received a lot of my information from that uh, sermon or from that person. But all that to say, I, I don't just, I write every sermon that I ever preach, um, and, and yet oftentimes I lean heavily when it comes to the subject matter on people who have gone before, writings, commentaries, books, sermons, uh, all those other things. And so I just want you to know up front that this is a very technical passage. He's talking about spirits in prison. He's talking about where Jesus' spirit went when he, his body died on the cross, that his spirit was alive and it was transported someplace. He's talking about water baptism. He's talking about Noah. He's, there's a lot of things in here. And I just want you to know on the front end that I've leaned heavily on a lot of resources that I'll quote throughout the passage. Nothing different from week to week, but also uh, just so that you know that there's a lot more to this passage um, than what you may have picked up on in just a simple reading. But I want to give you the big picture because I don't want to get too far into it uh, before you see the big picture. And the big picture might, it might help you to set it up this way, that there's a paradox um, in this passage. Um, there's a paradox uh, in Scripture. And a paradox is just kind of a seemingly absurd statement that's true, right? It's a seemingly absurd statement. Um, and, and there are a lot of paradoxes in Scripture. Uh, there's a list for you there on the screen, but there's a lot of paradoxes in Scripture. So just kind of think about some of these. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 20 that the last shall be, shall be first, right? Uh, when my kids are trying to run and get in line somewhere, they try to think, do I want to be first or do I want to be last? Or is this a biblical question? Or what do I want to do? Do I want to get first or last? And they, they get confused. Uh, Jesus said the least shall be the greatest among you in Luke chapter 9. Um, Jesus said that if you want to be a leader in a body of believers, that you have to be a servant. Uh, you have to be a servant in Matthew twenty twenty six. He told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should love our neighbors. I mean, sorry, love our neighbors, but love our enemy. He said that we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, he says that pride, that is when you're most self-confident, that when you have the most self-righteousness, that when you feel most confident in yourself, the next thing that you can expect is to fall away. Pride comes before the fall in Proverbs 16, 18. Uh, in your weakness, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, that's when you're strongest. Remember Paul said, I have this thorn in my side. He didn't have a literal thorn in his side, but he had an issue of sin or an issue, a physical issue. And he said, Lord, I need you to remove this thorn. I need you to take this weakness away. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, my grace is what? It's sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. My, actually, Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so when you're the weakest, that's when you're strongest, Paul. It's not when you're at your A game. It's not when you're most confident. It's when you're the most dependent and the most weak. That's when you're strong. Now, that doesn't make sense to us. These paradoxes can confuse us. Uh, humility leads to exaltation. So the more humble you are, the more you'll be exalted. But the more you exalt yourself, the more God will humble you, right? These are all very practical things that Jesus describes as life in the kingdom. And it's almost, I've heard uh, sermons and series where it's an upside down kingdom, where everything that Jesus is describing doesn't make sense to us on the surface. They're paradoxical. And most clear is this passage that we read today. And that is that suffering is the path to victory. 
And I think Yoda said that suffering was the way to the dark side, but, but Jesus said that suffering is the way uh, to victory. That if you want to win in your life, winning spiritually, being blessed, having this relationship with God is going to look more like, listen, suffering and trials. Now, if you turn on the TV, what I just said uh, would not make the airwaves, right? For most programs, uh, most of the gospel that is preached in America says that if, if you're blessed, if, if God is with you, that you're going to have plenty of money and that you're going to be very comfortable in life and that you won't have any problems really, but, but you won't get sick and, and cancer and struggle and disease and, and bad finances, that if your life is going to be blessed, right? It's like the athlete giving the, uh, the speech on stage after he wins the, the, the Super Bowl or something. He says, I'm blessed. God has blessed me. And the obvious referral in our culture is that if you're blessed, everything is perfect, right? Your family's good, your kids are good, your finances are good, your job is good, everything's good. And that's what it means to be blessed. But, but listen, that's not at all what Scripture teaches. That's not at all what the Bible is. And so you may say, well, great, so now I'm, now I'm looking forward to suffering. Thanks. This is what we have to look forward to, is a lifetime of trial and misery and suffering. Well, it's not all that way. But God absolutely has a significant place in your sanctification process for suffering and trial. It's absolutely true. There's a place in your life for suffering and trial. And if you're experiencing a trial, if you're struggling, you may be tempted to to bail on Christ. Right? You may be tempted. You might be thinking, wouldn't my life be easier if I wasn't a Christian? Maybe you would have really nothing but yourself to live for. That sounds simple enough. Nothing but your own sort of happiness level as your like barometer of, of uh, how well you're doing. Like if you're really happy, then, um, then you're doing well in life, right? That's kind of what it would be like if you weren't a believer. If, if, uh, and, and along those lines, and with that kind of philosophy, is that if, you're, if your marriage isn't making you happy, then you just walk out on your marriage. If your job doesn't make you happy, you just walk out on your job. That, that if you're living for yourself in this culture, really the only sort of indicator of how well you're doing is how, how happy are you? Are you enjoying the American dream? Is this all that your life is about? And so you can walk away from Christ and experience a trial-free life with that as your sort of gauge. Am I happy enough? Am I, is everything good? And, uh, and that's a temptation for many people. As a matter of fact, there is a weeding out in the church. It's no longer culturally um, acceptable for you to be a Christ follower and to come and to hear a book like this on a weekly basis and to take a stand for truth. And so in Christianity in America, there is a weeding out where churches are being thinned out of those cultural Christians who are not really walking with Christ and not really in this for anything other than their own sort of personal satisfaction. And so for you to be here is a big thing these days. So maybe it would be easier if, you're, if you weren't a believer. Maybe. But an easy life full of comfort without purpose or pain is not the path to a godly life. You don't get a degree uh, from a good school on accident. And you don't, uh, you don't have a successful career on accident. And you don't stumble into godliness. 
And Jesus said the pathway to godliness and the greater Christ-likeness is by following Jesus. And where did Jesus go? Downward, right? He went downward into suffering and trial and pain and difficulty. And so if you're experiencing that today, hang on. Listen, this is good. In your, in your suffering and in your struggle, there may be your greatest triumph, your greatest victory. Uh, and so I think that's the thing that Peter wants us to hear. Dr. Uh, John MacArthur said this about this passage. He said, the lesson for us here is plain. Don't despair in times of difficulty. You know what despair is? Have you ever been hopeless? Have you ever been hopeless where you feel like, ah, things aren't just going to get better? Your, your mindset feels like things aren't going to change. We're not going to get any better. Hopelessness is uh, sort of temporary, but despair is when hopelessness settles in for a long time. Have you ever been in despair? You don't need to raise your hand, but if you've been in despair, you know the difference between momentary hopelessness and long-term despair. Despair is when you've lost all hope. Despair is when you feel like there's, it's never going to get any better. And people who are in despair, it's a terrible sort of uh, internal struggle. And so if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're in the middle of trial, if you're in the middle of crisis, these believers were that Peter was writing to. They were, they were being carted off to jail. They were being physically beaten. Their property was being seized. Some of them were uh, going to Rome and, and, and were being exposed to lions right in the Colosseum and they were being beaten and they were being crucified and they were being used as bonfires, right? These, there were terrible things happening to Christians. And that's who Peter's writing to. And so MacArthur continues, he said, don't despair in times of unjust treatment. Don't despair in times of rejection. It could be that this is the time of your greatest triumph. And that's what Peter wants his readers to understand. He's writing to persecuted, rejected believers who are being unjustly treated and unfairly and treated with great hostility. And he wants to encourage them by reminding them that the time of our Lord's greatest unjust treatment, right? When Jesus was the most terribly treated, when it was the worst for Jesus, it couldn't get any worse. During that time, that was when His greatest triumph happened, right? What if Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had said, take this cup of suffering away from me? Right? He's sweating drops of blood and he's asking his disciples to pray for him. And this is, this is up to that moment, his greatest moment of uh, agony. And Jesus is absolutely suffering worse than any time in his life. And he holds the cup representing God's wrath. And he says, if it's your will, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. And God could have said, okay. If you want to walk away, you can walk away. But had Jesus not experienced the greatest level of suffering, which is going through the cross, we would not have experienced life. His greatest triumph happened right there in His moment of greatest suffering. And listen, if you're suffering, you're going to experience triumph through that. There is great spiritual victory for you when you're suffering. And so let's go back through the text and let's see how Peter shows us that through suffering, Jesus accomplished victory. Through suffering, He accomplished victory. And so by reason, and as His followers, if you suffer, there is victory in that. Now, how many of you are suffering? How many of you are struggling under trial or have been? It doesn't take long. James says, 
when you face trials of many kinds. Not if, right? So you're going to. And just know that that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And it doesn't mean that, that God has bailed on you or that He doesn't see you or that He doesn't hear you. It just means that there is something greater in store for you. And the greater you suffer, the greater your victory could be. The greater you suffer, the greater your victory could be. So we follow Jesus' um, example of how He triumphed through victory. So let's look at verse 18. Jesus triumphed through suffering. Verse 18 said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Stop here. This is a very clear passage on a term called uh, the penal substitutionary atonement. Right? Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma. Oklahoma doesn't have dirt, really. It's got like clay. It's red clay. And so if you look and you, if you uh, dig, it's like the earth is bleeding. It's bright red. When you dig under the green grass, there's, there's red clay. I grew up near a lake uh, called Lake Thunderbird. And we would call it Lake Dirty Bird. Uh, it was if you put your hand an inch under the water, you saw nothing but red clay, dirt, water. If you wore any, whatever bathing suit you wore in would be a different color when you got out, right? It was just just kind of a gross lake. Um, but there are some lakes. I've seen pictures of lakes in Canada, like in Banff, uh, where if you look down 25 feet, you can see crystal clear to the bottom. Listen, what does that have to do with this? There are some passages in Scripture that are like looking through a clear glass water. I mean, it's just, it's just pristine, perfect. And this passage, if you want to understand atonement, you must memorize this verse. You must memorize 1 Peter 3.18. It is one of the clearest passages on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And when I say penal substitutionary atonement, um, this is basically what that means. It doesn't have to be super technical, though it sounds technical. Here is uh, one uh, note says, here is one of the richest, clearest, briefest New Testament summaries of the work of Christ. And if you can memorize this passage, you will have at your fingertips one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture of what Jesus accomplished for you. If you've ever tried to explain who Jesus is and what He's done, This verse will help you do that. Theologians describe the heart of the gospel as penal substitutionary atonement, and here's what this basically means. Jesus paid the penalty for sins, right? That's penal. Jesus paid the penalty. There was a penalty for sin, right? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, right? That's the penalty. The wages of sin is death. If you've sinned, you have a penalty. It's death. If you have ever sinned, which includes um, anyone in the room who happens to have a, a heartbeat. Right? So if you're not sure if you've sinned or not, what you need to do is take two fingers and put them right here on your wrist. And if you feel a heartbeat, the truth is that you have sinned at one time in your life. Now, just that statement alone is incredibly offensive to some people. They say, I'm no sinner. Right? And if that's you, if you're not quite sure you're a sinner, just see me afterward and we'll go through a little checklist called the Ten Commandments, right? It's just a real brief uh, sort of ten list. If you've ever, the last five, if you've ever um, hated anybody, uh, Jesus said you've murdered them in your heart. If you've ever 
lusted after somebody, if you've ever stolen anything of any value at all, if you've ever told any kind of lie at all, or if you've ever coveted something that's not yours, said, I wish I had what you have. Right? Just those last five should pretty much condemn every one of us on a daily basis. Right? So I hope I don't have to make the point over and over that we're all sinners. Right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have and fallen short of the glory of God. That's very true. We've all sinned. And that is... Uh, this is how Je- this is the penal part that we we deserve the punishment for our sin. We deserve the punishment for that. And Jesus says he suffered for sins. So that's the part where it says he he took the punishment for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the substitute part. You see that? We deserve to be on the cross. He didn't. Have you ever heard the song? He paid a a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Right? That's the substitutionary part. He never sinned. And because He never sinned, He didn't owe the debt of death. But He died for us as a substitute. And the atonement part is that God accepted. God accepted His punishment. Right? So you understand, penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, we owed a penalty. Jesus paid it. And, it, and God accepted it. That's all you need to know. Is there's a receipt. God gave him a receipt. I accept the payment that you made for their sin. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. First uh, Peter three eighteen. Let's look at the next part, verses nineteen through twenty. So Jesus triumphed over sin. He won victory in his greatest moment of suffering. That's verse eighteen. But Jesus also had a greater victory. Uh, the Bible presents this angelic realm. Right? That's not new to us, that there's a spiritual realm, that there are things unseen around us, that there may be angels in the room with us, that there are fallen angels that may be in the room with us, that we've all experienced the influences of this spiritual realm. That's not too hard for Christian biblical people to understand. It's a worldview that the Bible prevents, presents, so it doesn't prevent it, it presents it. The Bible presents this worldview. And so verse 19 says that Jesus, after He died on the cross, that His Spirit went somewhere. His body is still on the cross, but at the moment when He said to tell us die, it is finished, and He breathed His last, and He, he gave up His Spirit to God, uh, it says that His Spirit went somewhere at that moment. Look at verse 19. In which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison... Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, what do we do with that? All right. All right, let me just give you the quick crash course on angelology, right? All right, so there are angels. Right? There's the big category of angels. Hebrews tells us they are all ministering spirits sent uh, for, for as Create beings that God uses to serve His greater purposes. Now, in that big category of angels, there are good angels. Right? Think of a couple of good angels. The archangel Michael, and there are others, Gabriel, who announced all this. And then there are also fallen angels. Right? In the category of fallen angels, you read Isaiah 14, you read Ezekiel, you read uh, Job 1, you read all these passages that describe the fall of 
Lucifer or of Satan or of the devil where he takes a horde of angels, right? And they rebel against God and there's this big battle between God and these fallen angels, right? So now we understand that there are fallen angels and good angels. Now in the category of fallen angels, there are loose angels, okay? And there are bound angels, loose and bound. The loose ones are the ones that uh, are free. They're in the world and they are able to wreak havoc. They are actively waging a war against all things good and godly. They are actively involved in the world doing uh, damage to the kingdom of God wherever they can. Accusing, tempting, just spreading violence and darkness. This is the fallen angels, right? Those are the loose ones, but then there are bound ones. Do you remember when Jesus drove out the demoniac, the legion of demons, then the demoniac, and they said, whatever you do, don't send us where? To the abyss. Don't send us to prison. Don't send us there. Have you come before the time, right? Wasn't the time, there's a time of judgment. Have you come before the time? Don't send us there. Send us into that herd of pigs and we'll just get out of your hair, right? Um, in, so there are these loose angels, but then there are these bound angels that are in prison. What does that mean? And, and what do we do with that? Well, there are three or four passages uh, that describe these bound angels. They're angels in prison. 2 Peter 2.4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but they, He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Right? There's a prison. Fallen, bound angels are trapped in this prison. Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, within their own boundaries, but they left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Alright, so now we have all these bound angels in prison. Why would Jesus go to these bound angels in prison and tell them that He just won the victory, to declare victory? Uh, well, in Genesis 6, there's an unusual passage about the sons of God, and they would go to the daughters of men, and they would have children by them, and they would be these great heroes. Uh, and these are called Nephilim. And these were angels who strayed outside of their boundaries, okay, by having kids with women, and they became these heroes. This is all biblical. I'm not making any of this up, right? I'm getting weird looks. I understand there's a lot to process at first, but, but these are the ones who have been bound in prison. You understand that these fallen bound angels, uh, these were the worst of the worst that are being held until judgment day. And Jesus went to the lowest. What Peter may be getting at here is that Peter went and declared to the spiritual realm from the lowest place of the prisons where the worst of the criminals are being held, he went throughout the spiritual realm and declared his triumph through what they thought was his greatest moment of defeat. They thought that his greatest moment of Defeat was his death on the cross. You remember the scene um, in Aslan when Aslan gives his life, right? In C.S. Lewis' writings, he's, he gives his life and, and the witch, she thinks it's the greatest moment that Aslan is going to die and it's absolutely his moment of incredible victory. And just like for us, Jesus won his victory by suffering and he declared it to these angels who have fallen away. So Jesus' suffering secured 
salvation for us over sin. Jesus' suffering declared victory over the spiritual darkness that invades and permeates everything in this world until a time. Uh, The third thing you need to see here is that Jesus' suffering secured our salvation. He says uh, he brings up Noah and he brings up the ark. Um, Noah's uh, day, he built this ark and it took him 120 years to build this ark. And it says that as he uh, built this ark, we think of it as a boat, but it's really not a boat, it's a sermon. For 120 years, he's preaching that a judgment day is coming and that this is the salvation. And you know how many people believed his message after preaching for 120 years? Seven. It's not a very good church planter, right? It's not a very good church builder. This guy has preached for a long time. And there's so much wickedness in the world. There's so much violence. There's... Listen, do you know how God describes the Noahic uh, judgment? He says that man's only thought was what? Evil continuously. And then you have these weird angels and they're having kids. And there's... everything is terrible in the days of Noah. And as he's preaching, as he's hammering peg after peg after peg for 120 years, preaching the sermon that God's righteousness and God's judgment is coming... As he's doing this, only seven people respond and they go into this vessel. And this vessel is a metaphor of salvation. It's just that this ark saved seven people. And Jesus is saying that through the cross, through this suffering, I secured salvation for my people. He's not saying that baptism saves you. Even though, if you look at verse 20, 1, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Don't get fooled there. The act of being baptized does not save you. Read further what he says here. That the baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from your body. So so when you get baptized, it's not removing the sin from your life and you come back out of the water and there's no sin in your life. He's saying that it is what? As an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? What saves us? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is like a symbol, like Noah's Ark, that is uh, showing us what Jesus did on the cross, and that's what saves us. His death on the cross and the fact that God received it was the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is declaring His victory and suffering over sin. He's declaring His victory and suffering over the entire spiritual forces of darkness, from the lowest in the lowest prison to the highest of, of angels and In the spiritual realm, Jesus has won complete victory. Verse 3, He's won complete victory by securing our salvation. And look at verse 22. His suffering says He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. There's no higher place than that. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. All that basically says is that Jesus is the best, right? He's the, he's the one who has the best position. He's at the right hand of the Father, and all things have been made subject to Him. Jesus, His suffering secured His position as Lord over everything. Philippians 2, that He was equality with God. He, he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant, became obedient, and even obedient to death. That's what Jesus accomplished for us in His suffering this humiliation. Now, what does this have to do with you and I? Where do we go with this? Why does Peter want them to know that if we follow Jesus and Jesus suffered in this way and He secured His greatest victory, what does that matter to you and me? Well, it matters because Hebrews tells us 
that we don't have a great high priest who has gone without suffering. But we have somebody who's gone before us into suffering. We have somebody who has blazed the way and has cleared a path through it. Would you like to follow a general in battle who sits in the back and says, y'all go, man. Y'all go get him. I'm going to stay back here and drink sweet tea. I'm just going to hang out and you guys go. The enemy is that way. Just go. Or would you rather have like a William Wallace kind of guy who charges headlong into battle and then you just sort of follow? Funny thing about William Wallace is he's noted for this great speech he gave in the movie. But he really didn't say that. And this week I, I went and did some research. He did this. His really, what he's most famous for is a speech that said, hey, I brought you guys to the ring. Now let's see if you can dance. Which basically was in the context of he said, I, here's, the, here's the war and I'm not really going to fight, but I brought you here so I want to see if you can fight. And it's kind of a bad thing about William Wallace that he said, I don't want to fight, I just want to watch you fight to his own troops. And would you, would you rather follow somebody who goes into battle with you, who's right next to you and is winning and is getting victory and is getting gains and taking ground, or would you rather follow one who's in the back? Well, this is what Peter's saying. If you're going to suffer, you want to follow Jesus. Jesus suffered and He blazed a trail, and you, as you follow Him and as you suffer, you can expect victory in the vessel of in Christ. You can expect victory. You can expect victory as you suffer and as you go through trials. So let me make it really personal uh, as we close. As we think about um, struggling, you may have come to a point in your life where you struggle, where bad things are happening to you and you wonder where God is and you start to think things like, um, surely I'm under the wrath of, of an angry God. God is punishing me for some unconfessed sin. That the, the reason why I'm struggling, the reason why I'm failing, the reason why I'm suffering the way I do is because uh, God is out to get me. Right? There's something bad I've done that He wants to get at me. But once you understand this passage... We want you to understand that Jesus um, has given suffering as a means to victory, as a means of change, as a means of becoming, helping you become more like Christ. And you start to change your perspective and you start to view it as a grace. How many of you uh, think of suffering as a grace, a gracious thing in your life? Nope. Not a one of us, right? <laughs> Not a one of us say, Amen. Thank God. I just had this huge trial. I've been persecuted. They took all my property. Uh, I'm bleeding. Right? It's awesome. Right? Like the first church, like Peter and them, they, they rejoiced because they were able to suffer for the cause of Christ. There's a great article written about this concept, and it's called Uncomfortable Grace. When you think of grace, you typically think of blessing, you think of money, you think of health, you think of you know, blessing in the worldly sense. But this idea of grace, this idea of uncomfortable grace, is when God gives you what you need and not what you want. Has that ever happened to you? You thought you needed more and He thought you needed less. You thought you needed good. He thought you needed struggle and difficulty. Think about the pages of Scripture. Joseph wanted to visit his brothers in Shechem and uh, see how they were doing. And they wanted to sell him into prison and put him in a pit and kill him. And then they wanted to sell him into slavery into Egypt. Right? Not what he wanted. Not what he hoped for. But this is God's uncomfortable grace in his life. You think about uh, Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Asia in Acts 16. 
It's a good desire. But the Lord said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. And in the midst of Macedonia, he saw all these conversions, but he was also beat down and sent to prison and experienced all these trials and difficulties. You think about Gethsemane. Jesus petitioned the Father, let this cup of wrath be poured out, uh, not poured out, but hold it back. But the cross of Christ is this un, a perfect expression of uncomfortable grace. Are you experiencing any sort of uncomfortable grace? Is the situation you're in not a blessing? And you think that God has left you alone? Let me just help you see. Paul Trippi writes this. You're tempted to think that because you're God's child, your life should be easier and more comfortable, more predictable. But he writes, struggles are a part of God's plan for you. You must not allow yourself to think that God has turned his back on you. You must not let yourself begin to buy into the possibility that God is not as trustworthy as you thought him to be. And when you begin to doubt God's goodness, you quit going to him for help. You don't run to help to those people that you have come to doubt. But listen, God has chosen to let you live in this fallen world because he plans to employ the difficulties of it to continue and complete his work in you. God's plan to continue and complete his work in you might be through some of the most difficult situations you'll ever face. A few years ago, uh, Julie and I lost a child. And uh, for months, we had been preparing for this baby. We had been talking to our kids about this baby. We had been, uh, you know, the baby's in mommy's tummy. Our kids were young, and we'd been going through this whole process and looking forward to it. And then, as happens, it's very common, um, Julie had a miscarriage uh, after, I think, four months. And it was just a, it was just a devastating period for our family. Uh, it was super difficult because our children were young, and they didn't understand it all. And so we had, uh, we had these regular conversations with them where they would say, uh, what, now, what happened to the baby in mommy's tummy? I don't understand what happened to the baby. And one child kept saying over and over again, the baby in mommy's tummy died. And I couldn't quite wrap the head around this idea. For months this happened. And just early on, we started to think, how are we going to address this? We don't even know what to think. We were looking forward to this good thing, and then this seemingly bad thing happened. And so as we're trying to make sense of it ourselves, we, we came up with this way that it helped us process it. And we would say, you know, God has a long history of, of doing good to mommy and daddy. Really good. God has got a long history of blessing and provision, and, and He has given us great gifts. And so... When we receive this bad gift, I know that we can trust Him through this. And every couple of weeks, one of the kids would say, the baby in mommy's tummy died. We would say this thing, God, God has a long history of being really good to us, giving us good gifts and good things. And, and even when we get bad things, He's still worthy to be worshipped, and He's still worthy to be followed, and we can still trust Him. And, and through this dark path of trial and suffering that we went through for a season, we learned that some of our greatest blessings come through the hardest times. Have you found that to be true in your life? That sometimes the greatest things that God gives you don't come packaged in a Super Bowl trophy or a, a, a big promotion or a raise 
or, yeah, those things are great and they're there and you shouldn't feel bad if they're a part of your life. But you should not despise the good gifts of God when they come wrapped in a package of suffering. Because God is using that to work in you something greater, a greater victory. And as I look around the room, I see people who have suffered and struggled. I just want you to know not to despair, but to follow Jesus in the midst of that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the paradoxical kingdom. You say things that just simply don't make sense. Love your enemies. Pray for people who persecute you. Love those who hate you. Serve those if you want to be a leader. The least among you shall be the greatest. Humble yourself if you want to be exalted. You say all these things that don't make sense to our prideful, cultural, sinful minds. Probably the greatest paradox is that through the worst suffering, we can experience the greatest victory. Would you help those who hear my voice not to bail out if they're suffering, not to bail out too soon before the victory is declared, but to endure through trials, to endure through difficulties, and to endure knowing, Jesus, that you have already been there and that we will find a deeper, more intimate relationship with you as we follow you in this path of humility and suffering. What a, what a gift. What a gift it is. The, the most exalted humans in the book of Revelation are the martyrs. They're the ones who have a place under the throne, who cry out to you day and night saying, when, Lord Jesus, when, 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 when are you going to go and avenge? What a gift it would be if you called individuals in this room to suffer and to struggle. For many people in this room, you've already called them to that. They're already struggling. They're already suffering. And their biggest question maybe to this point has been, why? Why are you making me go through this? Why this trial? Why this difficulty? For others in the room, their question may be, why am I not suffering? Is my witness for Christ not enough? Is my commitment to Christ superficial and that no one is picking on me and that there's maybe my stand for righteousness hasn't been what I thought? Not that any of us are looking for suffering, Lord. But it is a mark of maturity. And it is a mark of a deepening intimacy with You. I pray in Jesus' name that You would allow us to experience a greater intimacy with You. And if that includes suffering, I pray that we would all say yes. I pray that we would all embrace You, Jesus, in the midst of it. We thank You that we do not have a high priest who has not struggled. But we have one who has gone through the temptations and has proven victorious. We thank You that that's who we follow. And let us follow You all the way down that we may know You and declare you more. In Jesus' name, amen.